John chapter 14. Except you're going to start at verse 7. Except you want me to start at verse 7. Yes, sir. All right, we'll start from verse 7 to verse 17. This is God's holy, perfect, inerrant word. Give it your full attention. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here ends the reading of the word. Amen. Okay, we'll watch for the echo. Well, good morning, and God bless you as we gather again under the word of our God. When General MacArthur had to flee the Philippines and skip down to Australia, he made a very bold promise to the Filipinos. He said, It's not working? He said, as providing the same echo, oh no. (laughs) He said, I will return. That was a bold promise to bolster the, the courage and the patience of the Filipinos as they were about to be occupied by the Japanese army. Now, in God's providence, General MacArthur was able to keep that promise and to be victorious in the Pacific front. But uh, there was no guarantee, was there? He could have even put down a big pledge of a of million dollars that he would return, and, and that pledge still could not guarantee that he would return. But when our Savior was preparing his 11 closest disciples for his departure, he actually said that and much more. He said, I'll return. I'm going to return for you in a few days and spend 50 days with you, or 40 days with you. And then he said, I'll return at the end of the age for you. But meanwhile, he lays down a pledge that's more than a pledge, though. It's a person. And his returning, then, is coming in the form of the Holy Spirit, of whom we have just sung. Now, what we have in these few verses is essential to everything uh, that Christ is teaching in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, everything, all the comfort, all of the hope of the future is bound up really in what he says right here. So we need to to pay close attention. As we saw last night, uh, Jesus um, 
promised or, or commanded the disciples that he not be afraid, rather exercise faith, faith in him, which is the same as faith in the Father. And by that very simple commandment, he identifies himself as divine, equal with the Father. And he says, it's necessary that I go because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's phase two of the mediatorial work. When he completed his humiliation in his death burial, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven uh, and received then the inheritance and the gift of which we will speak this morning. Now, in the subsequent verses, he reinforces the fact now that he is God. As I mentioned last night, uh, the, uh, these three chapters, I think, are the most comprehensive statement in Scripture about the deity of God the Son, the deity of God the Holy Spirit, and the remarkable, incomprehensible mystery of the three in one and the one in three. So Christ, in that early section that we read, clearly identifies that he and the Father of one. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And on the basis of what he's going to accomplish then through his works, uh, greater works will be done then by the church, by the disciples, and throughout the ages, because Christ is going to be at work as the glorified Savior working in and through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here in this little text, we're introduced this morning to uh, the person and something of the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to show you is, is that on the basis of the mediatorial work of Christ, we're going to keep repeating that, on the basis of the mediatorial work of Christ, God, or Christ promises that God will send the Spirit to those who keep his commandments. On the basis of Christ's mediatorial work, he promises that God will send the Spirit uh, to those who keep his commandments. Now, we're going to do two simple things. We're going to look at a preamble, which we have here in um, verse 15, and then uh, the promise in 16 and 17. A preamble, boys and girls, that is an introduction. A preamble a prologue, a premise, and then a promise. Now, when you look at your English Bibles, at least the New American Standard, um, verse 15 is kind of hanging there by itself between uh, 7 through 14 and 16 and 17. But in fact, the grammatical structure uh, makes this a preamble or a premise to the promise. So when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, what you miss here in the New American Standard, and I have not looked, say, at the ESV or the New King James, is and I. And it's not, it's a peculiar word. You'll find it in, in, in the Gospels, John's epistles. It's those two words, and I, put together. So there's a clear connection. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will Ask the Father. So first we must look at this preamble. And what we have here is a, uh, a new focus on love. They love Jesus. They would do anything for him if bravery didn't fail them. Uh, and they were heartbroken because he was going to leave. And just as you see that same heartbreak in, in, in the women who come to the tomb... Uh, in the morning of, uh, of, of the resurrection. Um, their love was being spent in grief already. And what Jesus is doing is refocusing love to a different end. Not love in him as the dearest and closest and godliest friend they've ever known, but love in his will. Love in his will. And there's a little principle here. I know that many of you grieve. And what I want to tell you is, is that your grief is misspent if you're focusing on the one that you loved who no longer is with you. No. God says you love by focusing on your duty. Focusing on your duty. 
And so he gives us now the test of love. If you love me, and this is not an uncertain condition, this is, well, I know you love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. So here is the new focus for love. Here is the measure or the test of love. It, in fact, is the measure of true discipleship. All of us say we love the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, what are Christ's commandments? Well, there are many evangelicals, and unfortunately some even in some of our Presbyterian Reformed churches say, well, those are the commandments that Christ has repeated in uh, the New Testament. Now, what's really helpful when they do that for themselves is that they say he never repeated the fourth commandment, which is ridiculous because he spoke more about the fourth commandment than any other of the Ten Commandments. But they have a new focus of ethics, that um, uh, my commandments, which Christ speaks of here, uh, are the commandments reissued uh, in the new covenant. But you see, that can't be true because we've just seen of his divinity, right? If he talks about my, he's talking about ours. <laughs> he's talking about the Father as well as he. So even though, even in this chapter, you're going to talk about my word uh, as well as my commandments, what is that word of Christ? What are the commandments of Christ? Well, they are simply the Ten Commandments. The law of God that was written on the heart, the conscience of Adam uh, before he fell, and which remains even in the shambles that lost man is in the image of God remains sufficiently on conscience that conscience may be the absolute just record by which any person may be sent to hell. Romans 1 and 2. What God did at Mount Sinai was graciously give us now a copy of his holy law. And the New Testament unpacks this for us very clearly, doesn't it? Tomorrow morning, our reading of God's law is going to come from Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus has asked the question about the greatest commandment, and you remember the answer. The first and foremost is, love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. He extracts that from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, and it's a summary of the focus of the law of God on the person of God with respect to the first four commandments. The second, then he said, is like unto it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the teaching of our Savior. That is his word. These are his commandments. If he and the Father are one, he, in fact, is the revealer of the Godhead. That's why he's called the Word. And so when these words were uttered and written uh, by a finger of God, other words indelibly impressed supernaturally upon tablets of stone, it was God the Son who was actually performing that work. And his purpose then when he came was not to abolish the law. Paul refers to his purpose in Romans 8. God, uh, in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The condemnatory requirement of the law, but also the perceptive requirement of the law, because of what Christ has done, we now, he goes on to say, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if, as we see, the Spirit is in us, we're going to walk according to the law. What then does Paul say in Romans 13, 8 and following? Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, and now he quotes the law, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he, Paul here interprets what Christ says in Matthew 22. The way you love your neighbor as yourself is by behaving toward him by the basis of the last six commandments of the law of God. Assumed in that, then, is the resp responsibility to love God 
uh, with entirety of your being. And this, of course, is the teaching of our catechism. Uh, what is the duty which God requires of man? 39, Shorter Catechism. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily, and that means it's summed up, in the Ten Commandments. The entirety of God's will for us is in those commandments. Thus, both catechisms will go on, but particularly the larger catechism, and expound then uh, the full unfolding application of the Ten Commandments, both in what God wants us to do and what God is forbidding us to do. So here's the test of love. You will keep the law of God. Now, how will you keep the law of God? Let me give you two deeds. You will delight in the law of God, and you will diligently keep the law of God. If, in fact, you love Christ, you're going to delight in his law, because if you love him, you delight in him, and this is his law, you then must delight in his law. And this is reiterated uh, in many scriptures. In the first place, John will say later in 1 John, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and the commandments are not burdensome. Now, boys and girls, do you sometimes find the law of God a bit burdensome? A bit of, you can't do certain things on the Lord's Day, or you can't do other things. Your parents will correct you for breaking one or another of the commandments, and you kind of bristle? No. Um, by God's grace, we want to be able to say that the law is not burdensome. That's the, putting it negatively. But positively, it simply means that we then love and delight in his law. So uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Or 97, Oh, how I love your law. Now that's what Christ is looking for when I say delight. That we delight in his law and we delight in all of his law. We are not picking and choosing. The law of God is not multiple choice. The law of God is the perfect revelation of the mind of God for all people. But he's particularly redeemed us so that we then may delight in all of the law. Delighting in it, we then diligently will seek to obey it. So the psalmist goes on in 119, verse 34, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Diligence in keeping the law of God is also very important. Now, our neighbors will misunderstand us. You probably have seen this maybe with respect to the Sabbath or evening worship or whatever. But um, they'll accuse you of being a legalist, right? How many of you have been accused of being a legalist? Yeah, uh, because you delight in all the law of God and diligently try to keep it. But you see, that's not legalism. Legalism is either trying to earn God's favor by law-keeping, but that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? He says, if you love me, in other words, you've already found favor, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then the second thing that legalism is, is adding to the law of God. And then you're not delighting in the law of God. If all the law of God is our delight, we don't need anything else. A better word to go along with diligence is precision. Precision. You're precise in your desire to keep the law of God. Uh, one of the Puritans, and there's two of them with this name, uh, uh, John Roberts was riding his horse, and a neighbor, actually was the lord of the manor, comes alongside of him. He, he resents a lot of the Puritan emphases. And so he's trying to get an argument. It was Rogers. I said, John Rogers. He tries to get an argument out of Rogers, and Rogers doesn't take the bait. He's just not going to argue. So finally, in desperation, uh, the, the lord of the manor says, why is it that you Puritans 
are so um, precise. He says, because we love God. <laughs> we love God. We want to keep all of God's law. Do you love God today? Then do you want to keep all of his law? Out of love. So let's circle back around. Uh, this is a heart of affection for God. Now, we are different people, one from the other. And some of us will express our emotions more easily uh, than others. I wish that I could weep more. That's not how God has made me. But regardless of how God has made us emotionally, that our obedience to God is to come from a heartfelt love and affection, not from a misdirected uh, obligation. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're lacking the affection, that doesn't mean you don't do the obligation. But what we're looking for is a fountain of affection that is springing up uh, to God so that we will not fall into that desperate plight of the church at Ephesus who had great orthodoxy and church discipline and fervor for the faith, but he said, you've lost your first love. What is the first love? It's that love of God who saved you. It's a realization that you owe everything to him. And it's not that realization then that you want to please him and serve him individually and as a congregation. So this test of love is that from the heart, out of affection for God, we want to keep all of his commandments. I trust that is your commitment as you are here this morning. Now, it's not that we always like what God commands us to do, is it? And that's because of the sinful nature that's yet within us. And that's why Paul very realistically tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so there'll be revolt going on in our lives. Uh, there's going to be a rebellion against this or that application of the law of God. And we seek the grace of the Holy Spirit to subdue the flesh and to submit to the law of God and to God will grant it would not be burdensome to us. What's well, the preamble? You see, you cannot have what's promised here in verses 16 and 17 if you do not love God and keep his commandments. It's just simply that easy. That's why they're connected grammatically, and that's why I've connected them as preamble, and then now the promise. So the promise is in verses 16 and 17. It's a very simple words. I will ask the Father... He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Let's unpack these two verses being an investigative reporter. So let's ask our questions. What, who, how, how long, where? What? Who, how, how long, and where? All right? So what is Christ talking about here as he uses this word that is only used in the upper room discourse and one time in 1 John 2, verse 2? Well, the what is called the paraclete. It's the only time this word is used, these few times in, in 14 through 16 and 1 John chapter 2. Sometimes it's spoken of as comforter. Now, the verb it comes from means to exhort or to encourage. I've always translated it to come alongside of and speak the necessary word. Now, I believe that opens up to us uh, the paraclete. Now, we translate 1 John 2, 2 as an advocate. So, Philip knows what an advocate is. An advocate is a lawyer. He's the one who comes alongside of you uh, to take your case for you. Um, and that is one of the principal ideas of the paraclete. He's the one that's going to come alongside of you and be then your advocate to protect you from the condemnation of the law. But advocates also give counsel. 
Um, they give uh, good advice, supposedly. Uh, they uh, can bring comfort. And so all these other words that we associate with paraclete are all appropriate. If we think you know, in the whole, this advocate is the one who stands by us, who pleads for us, even as Paul will talk about the Holy Spirit being an intercessor as well as Christ, who speaks to us, as we'll see, through his word, who instructs us, who guides us. And all of that, of course, there's comfort and protection. So this is the, uh, the what. This is the definition of, uh, of a paraclete that Christ says that he's going to send. So in my Bible, it's translated a helper. That's really helpless. That's just not useful. He's much more than a helper. You understand that. Well, then, uh, who is this helper? Who is this advocate, this, this paraclete? Well, he, in fact, is uh, divine, and we would define him as the third person of the Godhead. Now, just be patient. The Father will give you another paraclete. Well, now, what does another mean? Does it mean you already have one? Now you're going to get another, right? That's how we use another well, who's the one they already have? Well, that's been obvious. Who has their helper? Who is trying to comfort them as, as he's leaving? Of course, that is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's already uh, clearly taught that he is the uh, Son of God. And if you've seen him, you have seen uh, the Father. You've seen God himself. So now is another one, which means this is going to be one like me. And so immediately he's notifying us that this other one, if he's like him, is also going to be divine. And here's the first insight into the deity of the Holy Spirit, because he's another Christ. He's another comforter. He's another advocate. And as Christ is doing his heavenly work on our behalf, the Spirit is the conduit and the personal agent of accomplishing that work in our lives, in the gathering and perfecting of the elect. So he is a person, and he is a divine person, and in fact is called the spirit of truth. Now, who just said that he's truth? Well, we saw last night. It is the Lord Christ. I am the way. I am what? I am the truth, and I am the life. So this other comforter now tells us that he's also the one of truth. That as the first one is the truth, the other one also then as the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And again, this will get unpacked in other passages, but as such we're told that he will guide us into all truth. So he is the true revelation of the Godhead. And he is the fulfillment of all that's been promised with respect to the work of Christ. And he is going to then lead us or guide us into uh, truth. So how is he going to come? How will he be sent to us? So we've seen the what and the who. We'll look at the very first part of verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, here's where I relate this to the mediatorial work of Christ. The I will ask, I mean, the word ask can be used of prayer, and it, but its greater significance is just coming alongside and uh, asking something. So, when in, in Luke chapter 4, when they left the synagogue in Capernaum and they go into Peter's house, they ask him to take care of the mother-in-law and to heal her. Now, that was simply a request of friends to a friend to do what they knew he could do. And when the word ask is used here, in contrast to the word prayer that we had in the previous verses, there is a different word for ask. So when he says, um, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, that's a much more intense word of supplication. But here, this asking, which can mean prayer, but in the context here, it means to come alongside of and actually speak as an equal. And isn't that what Christ does in John 17? Years ago, we looked at that prayer together. Uh, he's not coming as a, a petitioner, really, is he? He's coming and he's laying down the covenant. Um, 
and claiming then out of the covenant transaction all that belonged to him. Well, that's what he's talking about here, that this covenant that was made in eternity uh, with the three persons of the Godhead and then with God the Son uh, in prospect of incarnation was that he would take to himself a human nature and he would come to earth, obey the law of God fully, fulfilling the demands of the covenant of works, and then offer his perfect life as a sacrifice, meeting the punishment of the covenant of works by his obedience, crucifixion, uh, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Now, all that is behind, I will ask the Father, because Christ had a reward. And this reward is mentioned, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4. And that is, he is received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit was involved in the work of Christ throughout the ministry on earth, but now he is receiving the Holy Spirit with the power for the Holy Spirit now to be sent as the Spirit of Christ. And he refers to God the Father first, that he will send the Spirit. But the Spirit sent by the Father is the Spirit who has been purchased to be sent by Christ. This gets into a very interesting uh, theological question. Uh, the original Nicene Creed said that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the, uh, in the Eastern Church, they kept that. But in the Western Church in Rome, they added a word, and it's quite famous, it's called the filioque controversy, which is Latin for and the Son. Now, the Western Church was right theologically, probably wrong to amend a document that belonged to the whole Church of Christ and should have gone about it a bit differently. But they're abs- So what we see here, and it's very interesting, in John 14, 15, and 16. So here, he says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you the other uh, comforter. And then in 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now, there's that relationship of the mediatorial work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But then in 1526, when the Helper Paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that's the Spirit of truth, and then 167, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if you want to write those down, it's 1426, 1526, and 167, along with what we have here in 14. Uh, 16. Now, you put all this together. The Father sends him. He is from the Father, but the Son sends him from the Father, and then the Son sends him. And this is how we get to uh, this, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. You remember that there's this, uh, what we will refer to as an economic relationship or the personal properties of the Trinity, as the larger catechism defines them, and that the Father is of none, uh, he's the Father, begotten of none. The Son is begotten of the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This completes the circle of the Trinity of the three in one. They each then have a, a role within their place, although because God is one, all members of the Godhead are active in what each one does in his separate calling and capacity. But this reminds us of the fullness of the Godhead. Our Savior in no way it has ever been in his person, uh, as a second person of Godhead, inferior or subordinate. There's now a, a heresy that's going around, and it's been promulgated by some fairly important theologians, mostly in Calvinistic Baptist circles, called the eternal subordination of the Son. If you come across that, run away from it as you would from a rabid dog, okay? Um, the Son has no eternal subordination to the Father. As our catechism says, see, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. As the God-man, or put an equal sign, the Christ, yes, he was in submission to the Father uh, in order to fulfill his mediatorial role. So what we see here then is the how, is that Christ, on the basis of his perfect work of humiliation and exaltation, has received the, the inheritance for the church, and he's asking the Father uh, to send now the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, the other comforter. So, what, who, how, how long? Well, uh, just look at it very carefully. Um, 
It's the spirit of truth receives from the Father. He will testify. He will testify. Whoops, I'm chapter 15. All right. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. How long is forever? Well, forever is the same as um, everything in this age until Christ returns. As long as he tarries, that is going to be this other comforter working in his church. Now, another little theological digression, and that is, what's the relationship of what Christ is saying here to the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? I'm often asked that question. Well, Jesus gives us the beginning of the answer in uh, John chapter 7, verse 39. John 7, 39. This is on the eighth day. Very interesting as well how the, the Feast of Tabernacles points to Christ and his resurrection. And so there was this eighth day of the feast, the day after the seventh day Sabbath. And eighth day always means day after seventh day Sabbath. And the Apostle John actually refers to uh, the resurrection day as the eighth day. This he spoke um, of the Spirit. So the water is being poured out on the eighth day, which is the climatic day that's pointing to Christ, who's going to be the one who pours out the Spirit. So as the water is being poured out, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit was not yet given. Well, does this mean the Spirit has been on an extended holiday uh, through the Old Covenant? Not at all. Uh, the Spirit is necessary at creation, where he was the perfecter of all things. He is uh, necessary in Revelation, where he is the Spirit who uh, revealed the Word uh, and scripturated. Uh, he is the Spirit of regeneration, uh, and so it's the Spirit alone who uh, can work on a heart and create a new heart in that person. He's a spirit of sanctification who works uh, in a person unto holiness. He's a spirit of gifts who gives to the church gifts necessary and to individuals. So what does Jesus say when the spirit was not yet given? Well, look at the last part of that verse because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we're talking here about Another paraclete, another advocate, another personal divine being. And he's most often thought of, in addition to being the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of whom? The Spirit of Christ. And we'll come to more of this in a moment. Christ indwells you, but Christ has a body in heaven. So how is the Christ going to indwell you? It is by his Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a moment. And so the Spirit worked outside people, yes, in them, but not permanently in the Old Covenant. But with Pentecost, the Spirit poured out on the church, now not only dwells in the midst of the church, as we'll come back to in a moment, but in every individual who's born again. And this is the beauty and glory of this ministry of the Spirit and the difference. One writer said, well, the Old Testament primarily promised uh, the Messiah. The New Testament before Pentecost promised the Holy Spirit. And now we live in the age of the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture. That's not to say the Old Testament doesn't promise the Spirit, because it does. But the focus, obviously, is on, uh, on the Messiah. And so as we speak here of, of uh, how long we see that difference. Well, then we come to what, in a sense, is the most exciting part of the text, and that is where. So, what, who, how, how long, where? Where is this other paraclete? Well, Jesus says that he is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not receive him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be with you. We'll answer the question negatively first, where? And that is not in the unregenerate. So when he, he says that the world cannot receive him, he's speaking here of, of the world of uh, sinful mankind left in his or their sin. That's the world. Those who have, 
have not been born again, not that some of them will not be born again, they will be. This is how John uses, well, God so loved the world, sinful mankind, that he gave his son, and thus God will pluck out of the world those whom he's going to save. But here the world is in contrast to um, the believer. The world here stands for the unregenerate. Now we know that because look what Jesus says, it does not see him or know him. Does that language take you anywhere else in the Gospel of John? How about John chapter 3? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says in verse 3, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And see means to have a saving understanding of the kingdom of God. And then he would go on to say, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And, and so by using the language here, it does not see him or know him. The world has no saving relationship with Christ apart from regeneration, which means it can have no saving relationship with the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is not experienced by any unconverted person. That person may um, speak long about the Spirit. They could define him as the third person of the Godhead. They could talk about all of his work, but they will never experience the reality of the Spirit of Christ in them, testifying to them of the beauty and glory of Christ, and working in them this comfort that Christ has promised, as well as the sanctification that we all need. If this morning the idea of a Holy Spirit being personal and dwelling and operating in you is foreign to your experience, if you've never experienced any of the sweetness and joy not always, but sometimes, of the gospel. The sweet assurance of Christ as Savior, which is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to us, then you could simply be in a very weak spiritual condition, but you also could be unconverted. You understand that? Because the world does not see or know the Holy Spirit. I know a lot about him, but does not see him personally, experientially, experimentally. And so even in this gracious and glorious promise that Christ has given to us, we go back to the preamble, right? So, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and I ask the Father. So there's another test. If you're not keeping the commandments, that means you have not seen or known the Holy Spirit, because you cannot separate those two things as the Savior has put them together. But then we come, what for me is actually the richest part of this, but you know him. Know not about him. But just as these 11 men knew personally and intimately the Lord Christ, they are going to know the Holy Spirit personally and intimately, as are you who know the Lord Christ. And then he says, he says two things. He abides with you. He'll be in you. Now, do you see the difference? I mean, abiding with us is pretty good. That's how God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple. He abided with his people. Uh, he walked in their midst, he says, and he was present with them uh, from the wilderness journey right up to the day of Pentecost. But we'll think about Absalom. When Absalom was finally brought back to Jerusalem, he was with David, Right? He now lived in the same city. He had his house back, and he would have had all of his royal privileges and prerogatives. But he was not in a personal union with the king, right? He couldn't bear it. Why bring me out of exile if you're going to still keep me at arm's length? So, dear ones, look at this very last thing. Not only, not only does he abide with you, he will be in you. Now let this sink in. In fact, the more you meditate on this, the more profoundly wonderful it is. In the first place, it is the reality of Christian experience that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 9, that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not of Christ. 
You're not in, uh, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This way says, walk in the spirit, not the flesh. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. <laughs> Look at this. But if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, you see again now the words are interchangeable. And remember when uh, you're reading any scripture passage and the word God is used along with one or both of the other persons, the God is the Father. So here is, the spirit of the Father dwells in you, but if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The silly business of, of charismania that says that, um, um, that you can uh, have Christ as your Savior, but you have to go through a certain experience to have the Spirit of Christ in you. Well, no, if he's not in you, what does Paul, what does Paul say? You're unconverted. It's that simple. You're unconverted if the Spirit of Christ is not uh, in you. But then, uh, this wonderful language in, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 do you not know, right into the church, you're the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, he puts that in the plural, but obviously all those that are there, because he goes on in chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, whom you from God, that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then Paul will talk about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built up together in the dwelling of God in the Spirit. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that means, dear ones, that the triune God is dwelling in you. We're often not taking that last step because the three are one. And what the one does, all three do. And so, this incomprehensible triune God by his spirit is dwelling in you as a church. But more significantly, is dwelling in each one of you who are in Christ. Just meditate. Let it sink in. What, is, what are we being told here? That we are the temple of the triune God. And how that impacts everything then. We go right back to, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Of course, we want to be pure because we are God's temple. And there will be the fountain of love because he is in us. The love of God poured abroad into our hearts. And we will grow in holiness because he's the spirit of holiness and sanctification. We will grow in our grasp of truth. But this where is so important because all the other promises of 14 through 16 are premised upon everything here but the climax, the where. Isn't it beautiful? And so, on the basis of the mediatorial work of Christ, he did come back. <laughs> MacArthur came back, that was great in God's providence. But Christ came back um, with the claim to that Father would send the Holy Spirit to those who keep his commandments. And you see how they're connected. But do you see then this inheritance that belongs to you today? And boys and girls, you've been baptized. I hope and pray to God that means already the Spirit has given you new hearts. But understand, even by your baptism, you have been related to the people of God among whom the triune God dwells by His Spirit. Should that not be reflected in your attitudes and your behavior? that you live in the presence of God, but also in the glorious hope that is yours, that you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you from all your sins. So this is part of your inheritance, boys and girls, as children of the covenant, and we want you to make it your own by making covenant with God and closing with him uh, in your covenant oath and owning him 
in that covenant. But every one of us who's in Christ this morning has this inheritance of the spirit of the triune God called the spirit of Christ because within us he's communicating every single thing that Christ has and is doing for us. Everything. Nothing is missing of every promise and every work. And so you pray that, as we sang, you pray for the Spirit to do this work in you. You pray to be filled with the Spirit, which simply means that He'll work in your affections and your will each day. And throughout the day, you pray to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. It's not some extraordinary experience. It's daily Christian living. Because He indwells you, and He empowers you. And whatever your task is, then you do it in dependence upon the Spirit. Whether it is uh, working on a school problem, or keeping house, or books, or lawyering, or building, or whatever you do. You ask God, to Spirit, to enable you to do it. You live in dependence upon Him. And then you live in dependence upon Him for your sanctification. Because it's, He's the agent of sanctification. We have means to use. And we'll talk about those in the second hour. But he's the, he's the sanctifier, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And so you seek him with confidence. Because you see, Christ has purchased for you holiness. And has promised you the spirit to work that holiness in you. So God bless. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this most remarkable preamble and promise as you tell us that if we will try to love you in obedience, that you will give us the Spirit who will enable us to love you in obedience. What a glorious circle. We praise you that Christ has purchased for us this most remarkable inheritance that one like him, another divine person, comes to us and indwells us and makes us the temple of the triune God. May we never be the same, Lord, as we meditate on this most incomprehensible truth. Amen. Yeah.